<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is a very special episode of Out of Patience. And here's why. Sorry, I just couldn't help myself. Yes, it's true. I got the chance to sit down. Well, not really sit down, but you know what I mean. And talk to one of my idols in the music industry, the one and only John Tesh. This is one of the most exciting and interesting interviews I've ever done, among many other things. We talk about his new book, Relentless, Unleashing a Life of Purpose, Grit, and Faith. So please enjoy my conversation with the one and only John Tesh. John Tesh, welcome to Out of Patience. I'll just start by letting you know all the things we have in common that we didn't quite know we had in common. We're both pianists, composers, cancer survivors, radio show hosts. We have a connection to the late Jerry Goldsmith. We both lost and regained functions of our body to get our career back on track. You've performed at Red Rocks, and I visited Red Rocks. So I'll leave it at that. Have you dated my wife? <laughs> Say hi to Connie for me. I'm sure she knows exactly who I am. (laughs) That's awesome. I was just so thrilled you were interested in being interviewed on our show and your new book, Relentless, Unleashing a Life of Purpose, Grit, and Faith. But we can't not start anything without discussing your music. Well, well, first of all, uh, I've always wanted to be you. I want—I mean, studying under uh, Jerry Goldsmith is—he's uh, uh, one of my all-time favorite composers. And I—I and I, I wanted my whole life to be—I mean, I used to—I uh, I used to actually shoot movies in my in my backyard with my cat Tippy. This is actually in the book where I was concerned about the uh, the ASPCA's reaction to this. I built a harness for the cat and, and used some fishing line and and flew the cat, quote unquote, across the clo- my mom's clothesline. And I did all of the the sound effects with my with my mouth. Of Tippy going to Mars was the name of the of the horror film. Uh, I, it was and it sounded like this. <clears throat> I was the original theremin, if you will. By the time I got to Entertainment Tonight, I had really – a lot of people think that, that that's where my career started. And I don't blame them because, you know, when 23 million people a night see you anchoring the, the celebrity headlines, that's, that's who you are. But, but for, for 15 years before that, I, I was working in local news. I was working in local news and also working at sports. And, and when I was at CBS Sports was when uh, music combined with, uh, with, with media – but when I was a kid, it really wasn't – music for me was uh, was just a way to get noticed. I think it is for a lot of boys too. But um, when I was in junior high school, I was 
six foot six in junior high. I'm six six now. I, I weigh two hundred and twenty five pounds right now, but in in junior high I weighed one hundred and fifty two. There were no hormones yet at all, and so I sounded like this. Very young um, piece of you, right there. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, it's a giant rabbit. Um, <laughs> anyway, I was my mom had strapped me to a piano basically because that's just what she was a taskmaster, and so. I learned classical piano uh, as a kid, and a lot of uh, a lot of Stravinsky, a lot of mostly Rachmaninoff pieces, and 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 then I realized when the Dave Clark Five came along that you could actually play a keyboard in a band, and I, I bought myself a, a, a with a, with lawn mowing money uh, a Magnus chord organ, and so I was I was in a rock band. Yes, Wait, so you did it for the girls, right? Yeah, 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 and and we were in a we were in a rival band. My band was called. Uh, we had two bands: the Days of Night and also the uh, Best of Both Worlds. I was also uh, I had a great teacher when we were seven. All of us in, in Stewart Avenue Elementary School. He just handed out instruments, and you had to play an instrument, otherwise, you know, you had to be in the choir. And I didn't want to be in the choir. <laughs> so and so it was always. I was surrounded by so much music that I was convinced that I was going to go on you know, and go to music school. And, and I had been named twice to the New York State Symphonic Orchestra as a baritone horn player. But my parents, especially my dad, decided that that wasn't going to be my future. You know, I, I have fond memories of Sam Goody in the Staten Island Mall. Oh. Oh. And it was basically a fee for service. If I knew that the girl I liked wanted me to learn Lionel Richie or Billy Joel or whatever, I'd go to Sam Goody and buy the song they wanted to hear. It's exactly the same story. Yeah, it's. Uh, um, I mean, there were there were two currencies at Garden City High School on Long Island back in the day, and one one was uh, was playing in a rock band, and the other was a, a letter jacket. And and the funny thing is, is that I had I had a letter jacket in 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 three sports, uh, three varsity sports, even though I was a skinny mini, uh, and I was in two rock bands that played at all the school you know dances and played you know in auditoriums and stuff. I couldn't get any girls <laughs> because I was just so hideously skinny. So none of that the the the, the skinniness it canceled all that stuff out. Do you feel like your own inadequacies were what drove you to want to prove yourself to get the girls? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it was, yeah, the, the inadequacies and, and, and plutonium was added. My dad would not do well parenting a millennium. And so, you know, it wasn't music really. I mean, he paid for the, uh, paid for the piano lessons and he would wake me up at like, you know, as a, that's like a seven, eight year old. I can still remember it. He'd wake, wake me up at 1130 at night. They'd be partying. My parents were big entertainers and, and he dragged me down and I'd have to play you know, at least as much as I could remember of Rachmaninoff's Prelude in C sharp minor, and the shooting at the feet in the westerns play. Exactly, is exactly what that was, and and they tried to get me. My mom tried to get me to learn the accordion, and I remember saying saying to her, I said, "I'm not, I'm not playing anything you have to strap to you." <laughs> Insert any Benny Hill theme you want after yeah, exactly, that. Yeah. Right, perfect. Exactly. You know, I came home one day in sixth grade. My mom played when she was a a, a kid, and my grandma threw her piano out when she got married. Because that's what apparently old Jewish. How do you, how do you throw a piano out? That's- <laughs> we came back from the honeymoon, and like two things were missing: my dad's baseball cards and my mom's piano, which is gone. Gosh. They moved into this apartment after their honeymoon, so my mom never really got to play. She was a kindergarten teacher in the '80s, and there was a piano in the classroom, so she just kind of started picking it up. And then one day, my dad's like, "I'm going to buy you a little spinet as a gift for the house." And I showed up one day at home after sixth grade, and there's a piano in the house. Wow! And I was like, "All right, where do you put your fingers?" And my mom just showed me some Annie Get Your Gun song or whatever. And I just took to it. She's like, you're getting lessons. I don't care. You're starting here. One of the girls that I knew I'd want to play piano for to impress was already getting lessons from this 
really strict Juilliard graduate, I had this this like 180 culture flip into you're only learning classical music. And unlike you, I have sausage fingers and I can't play Rachmaninoff and I couldn't stretch the 11 keys for Rhapsody in Blue. But I did my best with the sonatas and sonatinas. Then I found Sam Goody and the girls and I never told my piano teacher, Bertha Mandel, that I was cheating on her with pop music. That's an amazing story. So did you want a Moog? I want to ask you, did you want a Moog? Yeah, I did. I had a, I had a, well, I was a huge, uh, well, this didn't happen until I got into, into college, but I was, in fact, the odd thing is, is that I'm actually friends with this guy. I don't even know how that happened, but I was a big Rick Wakeman fan, but Rick Wakeman was, was the, is the keyboard player, player for Yes. He was uh, my favorite multi-keyboardist. And so I had to try and get every keyboard that he had. And so when I was in New York, I had a mini Moog and a, what was known as a multi-Moog. I guess the the real measure of a man is how many keyboards did you stack vertically to be a successful musician? Yeah, I mean that was yeah, it was uh, it's like a letter jacket. Like you know how many of the how many of the things did you have stitched on? You you could do that with keyboards. I remember watching uh, Yanni at the Acropolis, and and uh, he was like surrounded by. <laughs> I don't know how you remember what is what. And then I, when I got to Binghamton, I went to school there to study music and theater, and they had a MIDI room that looked like, you know, you, you could sit in the middle like a drum set and just play like 40 keyboards at the same time. And it's like the ultimate like multimedia, multi-sensory experience. Yeah. I mean, the, I, I know Yanni for, for years. In fact, we actually toured together for six or seven shows and I know a lot about Yanni. What people don't realize about, uh, just to digress for a second, people don't realize about Yanni is that, you know, his, his image with the, with the flowing black hair and the mustache and the mustache and, and his finger up in the air, you know, and, and sort of directing everybody and, you know, and, and with that, with that smile, what people don't realize because that's such a big image is that he's a tremendous keyboard player. Um, and writer. I mean, if you if you really want the original Yanni, it, it was written in his basement in Minneapolis. It's called Keys to Imagination, and it's, he, he really out Vangelis's Vangelis. I mean, Song for Antarctica is one of my staples that I yeah. just researched endlessly when I was writing my my uh, my works in college. I had this vision to be on like the Narada Equinox label. And that was just like one of these aspirations I wanted to have. I never really wrote original piano music until I got sick. But I was writing, you know, I mean, again, our common thread with Jerry Goldsmith. I had this aspiration, James Horner, you know, James Newton Howard is a huge composer hero of mine. You know, all these influences out there. And it's funny because now with this crazy COVID crap going on, everyone's rewatching the movie Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman. And that is one of the best soundtracks that Jimmy ever wrote. I scored like uh, three films, and and I did a, a cartoon show with Howie Mandel for five years called uh, called Bobby's World. Yeah, but but, it, but it, it it didn't take long to dawn on me as I was in in Los Angeles. There were people that were, including you, they were, they were far better than me. It is a, you know, people watch films and like oh, I really like that music. I, I try I tried to get uh, a record deal with anybody. You know, when it, back in the in the days of Entertainment Tonight, I started in 1986, and I and prior to that, I had written literally hundreds of hours of music for sporting events and themes, including the NBA basketball theme. And and so uh, I just thought, well, listen, here I am at Entertainment. The reason I took the Entertainment Tonight job was uh, was because it was only four hours a day in Los Angeles, and and I was coming from New York, and I also realized that this is where they made movies, you know, and this is where they made television shows. Maybe I could do something musically. And so I had all this music from the Tour de France and from all of these, uh, these other big sporting events and, that I had written. And I uh, 
you know, I basically applied to be signed to any record label, including A&M and Columbia and Ariston. I actually had a, a conversation with with Quincy Jones about this, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, he, it was very funny. And I got turned down by everybody and, and realized that my only way in was to do what I watched Yanni do at Red Rocks. And went, I went to my wife and said, the only way for me to be taken seriously uh, as a musician is for me to do something huge. She agreed. And, and we went to PBS and PBS said, no, thank you. It, it basically, if you want to chart my whole life, I'm very used to no, thank you. <laughs> I know. It's the best motivator though. It can be. It can be. For some people, it can be an excuse. So how do you get greenlit for Red Rocks? It, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting chapter in the book, actually. Uh, uh, Ken Cragen, who now is a friend of mine, had, I'm, very good, I'm very good at cold calling people, especially cancer doctors. I'll just call them right off and say, hey. hey. So anyway, Ken, Ken Cragen uh, did uh, We Are the World. He put that together, which was, you know, as you remember, that was massive. And also, yes. as across America. Then he wrote a book called Life is a Contact Sport. I'm on vacation. I, I pick up that book because I love reading books about decoding greatness. And I always have. And, and I read this book, and it was about how he put that together. And his big treatise was that you need to do something big and then following it and just keep following it up by supporting it and staying in that lane, so to speak. You know? And so I read that. And in the same month, I, I saw these guys. Uh, P- PBS had just started doing things like I really think the big start for them with music was was the three tenors. And then they followed up with Yanni. And, and, I, and I, knew, I knew the data on these guys. I knew what kind of, because uh, I was you know, still trying to sell records. At that was a phenomenon. I mean, it was, yeah. I mean, it was, talk about an overnight success, right? I mean, they, I mean, these guys work their whole lives to do what they do and, and same with Yanni, but all of a sudden Yanni went from selling, you know, a, a, you know, a hundred records a week to what, you know, gold records all over the place. And so yeah. I realized that, that, that my path was not going to be a record company. I need to start my own record company. And, and listen, I, I cheated. I mean, I had television money, right? So, you know, my, <laughs> yes. my wife was a famous actress. I was on ET making seven figures and we'd been saving money. So I went to PBS and pitched it. They said, no, we, we just, you don't have a history. And they said, if you make the special, then we'll take a look at it. Oh, God. But, uh, yeah, right? And they still do it that to this day because they can, right? Because when they, when they air a special, it's not like, uh, it's not like NBC where it airs once, right? As a special. In PBS, it's an infomercial. So they, you know, not only do they, they, they play the whole special over and over and over again for three years. That was Red Rocks. But they also, in between it, they, they're doing these pledge drives, as you know, and they're holding up the album and they're talking about your tour and all the rest of that. So that was, to me, that was my future. And so long story short, it's too late for that right now. Yeah. <laughs> long story longer. I um, went to Connie and, and we figured out what it was going to cost. We figured it was going to be a, we have to take a second mortgage on our house. And we did. And we, and we hired the 80-piece Colorado Symphony Orchestra for a month and all of the rehearsals and, and 15 cameras that, the, that my friend David Michaels put together. And, and the budget started at $600,000 and went to $1.2 million. So we would have definitely wow. lost everything if it, if it hadn't worked. Four songs in, and you can see this uh, on the Red Rock special, but you can also uh, you can read about it. It, it. Four songs in. It rained like it had never rained in Red Rocks. 30 years it hadn't rained like that, of course. My luck. What happens to violin players who have $1,000 violins when it starts raining? Yeah, nothing good. Yeah, they have to leave. So they left. And so I'm, I'm there with the, with the core band. 
And there's like five of us and Charlie Bishrat, my, my good friend who is an electric violin player, he said, come on, let's play. And the, and the audience wouldn't leave. They kept stomping their feet because they just, they had put on slickers. They knew Red Rocks and they, and they put up their umbrellas and we were, play, we, we knew this special was over and there wasn't anything to film anymore. So we just played for the audience and they went insane just knowing that we were sticking to 7,000 people, you know, we had given. But that's the rawness. You went with the situation, you leaned into it as they would say today. I think my favorite track from from the Red Rocks original recording was was 491. I learned about the the greatness of appropriate percussivity from Yanni, you know, and it's just a phenomenal song. Was that before the rain? That was after the rain. I don't write, I never have really I mean, I've written a few pop songs, right? I really like writing linear music. So a lot of those songs, they have all kinds of movements, but you may you may never even hear them again, <laughs> even though I'm a big fan of John Williams, you know? And so, um, and, and writing sports music, a lot of those songs were just huge. I mean, and, and, and even before you got to the orchestra, they were huge. And then you, all of a sudden you got seven trombones and, and four bass trombones all playing it and, and, and tubas, you know, and, and so it was big and it was as big as the, as the fireworks that were up on top of the stanchions. I have a really terrible version of that, uh, that, that anecdote, because I was giving a panel concert to 2000 nurses at an annual trade show in Philadelphia in 2004. And it was this massive ballroom in this massive hot hotel. And the piano was up on a, uh, on a podium and there was spotlight. They did a really good job lighting it for a hotel. And I get up there on stage and I had rehearsed and, and practiced beforehand. And I don't know what happened in the 20 minutes before and after, but I got on stage, I started playing and the entire pedal pedestal, the entire thing fell off the piano. It fell off the piano. All I've, I've, I've had that happen. Go, go ahead. But you know what? I just kept playing. I just kept, I did my one hour concert for them with no pedals. And it, that was it. And, and they, you know, not everyone's a musician, you know, you, you kind of play for the, the, for the crowds, but they just, I just did it. You just did, you lean in, you do it. And that was one of the most human experiences I had fumbling for air while trying to maintain, you know, just something really special. So yeah, yeah, you should follow us around on tour. That stuff happens like every other show. You know, it's like piano, the microphones fall into the piano, and uh, you know, people fall off. You've got we've had violin players fall off stages. Um, but the, the wild thing, though, is you know that, that long that long story of of playing in the rain is that that twenty minute segment. Uh, every time it was played on on people, and it was that twenty minute segment was was part of an hour and a half full show. Mm-hmm. That was a self contained segment, and at the end of that segment, you know they 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 pledge, you know, for this you can get the album, for this you can get the DVD, and you can get tickets to the concert. And that segment, even to this day, it raises the most money because it's the most right. compelling. The, you know, you, you purchase the eighty piece Colorado Symphony Orchestra, and then it's four guys, four or five guys playing in the rain, and that's what gets people. Yeah, that, that's where the meat and potato hits. Back with our guest after the break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Yeah, I want to get to your book. Uh, again, Relentless, Unleashing a Life of Purpose, Grit, and Faith. You know, we we do have the, the cancer story. You have, uh, I actually lost the use of my left hand for a year and a half, and I had to stop playing, which is why I did not get to formally study with, with Jerry Goldsmith at USC. You lost your voice and had to go through tremendous challenges to get that back. You know, you, you, the book called Relentless, one of my favorite words in the world is perseverance, and not because it has lots of syllables, but a lot of people have to self-define that whether it is hearing no a million times and just keeping on figuring out that you want to get this done. I know we both love Seven Habits, the book. Where does this factor into you just got to keep going? Yeah, it's it's hard to describe, isn't it? I mean, you and I are in a, in a unique club, um, not completely unique because other people who are listening are, are in that club. But when you um, when you face death, right? When that moment, uh, almost exactly five years ago, when when the the doctor told Connie and I patted Connie on the back and said, "You know, hun, it's time to go make lemonade out of lemons." That you know, I, I actually dealt with. Everybody thinks that it was like, "Oh, John," you know, he, he battled through it and and won the battle and everything. No, it just didn't. It didn't. I went through every possible iteration of of you know emotional disaster you know i mean i at first it was okay let's just let's 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 get smart about this let's uh let's let's read patrick walsh's book uh on surviving prostate cancer let's call up patrick walsh and uh let's find the best surgeon let's find the best and, and you know the job that we do every day is we, we interview experts and but then and, and you know, your first thought right is get the cancer out get it out take my prostate out take all the tumors out you know blah, 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 blah. And, and and it doesn't occur to you what the what the um, what the collateral damage is going to be, you know. And, and so I had plenty of that where my body shut down, and they were shoving NG tubes up inside me. And you you, you experience at whatever level it is, you experience an enormous amount of suffering. And and it's not like you know. It, I hate it when people say. Uh, somebody says, "Hell, oh, I've got uh, I've got back pain. Oh, you should try this, you know, or or it's probably you're that. You don't know, right? You know, and, and it's the same thing with chemo, where uh, you know it's it's everybody everybody reacts differently to this stuff, and I did not react well to it. I wanted to kill myself, and I talked about killing myself. I talked about taking kettlebells, those exercise, those Russian exercise things and weights, and strapping them to my ankles and jumping in the pool because I like the water. Once I read. When I could read and when I could listen, uh, once I read Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, as you know, is a uh, Holocaust survivor. And he, you read a book like that and all of a sudden you feel like, you know, what you're going through is a head cold. Little perspective, and, right? Yeah, it, it is. And that's that thing you're talking about with Stephen Covey is recognize the paradigm 
there's a chapter in the book called Pity Party, which I highly recommend because it shows what happens when you feel sorry for yourself and you and you don't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Because I almost lost my family. I, I was I was drinking. I was going through chemo. I was drinking heavily. I was taking Vicodin. I was just I was I was I was a mess. It can destroy you in a way that yeah. you don't have as a native behavior. I had the the, the incredible blessing and fortune to meet in person uh, Bernie Siegel. If you remember Bernie Siegel. Uh, who was one of the uh, preeminent uh, cancer surgeons of the 80s. And he had the gall, by today's standards, this will sound funny, he had the gall to talk about how your mind-body factors into how well you live through cancer and hopefully beyond cancer. And he wrote a book called Love, Medicine, and Miracles. Similar to you, I just called the guy up. Like I called up this legend and I said, hey, I, I don't know how I got your phone number, but I want to meet you. I have cancer. I'm 23 years old. I just want to... And, and he invited me up to his house and I, I drove up there. We went through the book and he taught me this idea because back in those days, back in the 80s and the 90s, they didn't tell you anything more than just the biology. But this idea of your mental health, how do you connect with communities, with people, with peers to balance out the horrors of this uprooting everything in your life? And I've never really mentioned this on the air or in any media that I've done, but there was a moment in time in like March of 96 where I was just so sick and throwing up 20 times a day, racked in pain. I lost 110 pounds of body weight in three months. And I had my first suicidal thought, and I thankfully my only suicidal thought in my entire life. So this is where I felt it was so critical to, even 10 years later, take an active role in making sure that that crap doesn't happen to the next person, and you're in that same place now. Well, and I was 40 years older than you when I got that, uh, when I got my diagnosis. And so I went a different way. I fought for a little bit, but then I became a cancer patient. I, and, and so what my subconscious mind did to me was, uh, and, and I'll step back and talk about how I think I got the cancer, but what it did to me was saying, well, you've done some, you've done some good stuff. You've been a good, uh, a good dad, maybe a good uh, grandpa. And let's find somebody to replace you, like my sons replaced me on the radio. And, and uh, I just behaved like I had one, literally one foot in the I mean, I sort of put myself into my own personal hospice, if you will. <laughs> I was using different drugs to do it. But yeah, so I, had, I, I really had given up and I, I became a cancer patient, but I became more of a cancer patient than I was even before I got diagnosed. And I'll explain that because my dad got cancer and, and died at 63 years old, uh, the same year in his life and in my life that I got cancer, I got diagnosed. And so I just want to live one day longer than my dad. And, and once I started studying, you know, three, three years after, uh, after we'd been going through uh, treatments uh, for my cancer, uh, I, I, I came upon something called divine healing, which is basically uh, certain scriptures in the Bible that, that are the promise of healing that churches, a lot of churches do not teach. Some do, most don't. And the scripture that, that I landed on, my wife and I both at the same time, was one uh, called Mark eleven twenty three, which says, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will be done, will have what he says. Therefore, whatever you ask when you pray, believe that you receive it and you will have it. Now that's, that's Jesus not talking to just, you know, the, the apostles, the disciples, but talking to everybody beyond the 2000 years ago, uh, that, that needed, needed to hear it. And then there was also 
uh, Proverbs 18.21, which is death and life are in the power of the tongue. And when I came upon, and listen, I had read all of these, this stuff when I was a kid. I grew up in the church. But until you understand what the authority is, what your authority is over, over sickness, and that when Christ went to the cross, he not only took our, our sins, because that's what people mostly preach, but also it's in there in the Bible, took our griefs, our sorrows, and our sicknesses, that we, God's nature is to want us well, not to put sickness on us. And I always thought that, that I had gotten the cancer because God wanted me to have a ministry, you know, and that's it's just, it's not in the Bible anywhere. You know, I, I have a phenomenally dogmatic approach to how do you make sense of crap you can't possibly, you know, understand. And, you know, Bernie really gave me that perspective with this, you know, love and medicine are, are kind of tangible in a sense. And, you know, what is a miracle? I, I live and breathe by Mel Brooks, one of my all-time favorite. And he, he used to do this skit in the 60s, maybe you remember it, uh, with Carl Reiner called The 2,000-Year-Old Man. Oh, of course. Yeah. And, and one, of, one of the bits where Carl asks him, he says, where does God come from? And in traditional Mel Brooks fashion, he says, oh, we used to worship Phil. <laughs> and Carl's like, That's who so the good. hell is Phil? That's and he's good. like, oh. Phil was nice, but then Phil got struck by lightning, and we looked up and said, "Oh, there's something bigger than Phil." And like, that's what a great way to just kind of summarize in Melberg's fashion what miracles really can be. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when I my story uh, is, and there's there's more detail in the book than I can do right now, but the the the, the supernatural thing that happened to my body when when my mind, when my heart, when my spirit was finally done with treatment. They wanted to radiate my pelvis with, with 67 treatments over three months, um, basically carpet bomb my pelvis because they found two lymph nodes that had lit up uh, after, the, after my prostate was removed. Is that the ADT story? Uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah. So androgen deprivation therapy also is when they take uh, when they take testosterone out of your body, which is equally as for some people, and it was for me, as nasty as uh, as the chemo, and they're doing it at the same time. Uh, but when they wanted to do the radiation, he went through the list of of all of the contraindications, uh, the functions that I might be losing in my pelvic area. They got to a couple of the functions that I was really fond of, <laughs> and 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 to be not to be flipped, but to be honest, faith was born. Uh, you know, I, sh- I share if you if you've seen the scene with um, Leonidas, the Spartan king in three hundred, looking back at his at his queen. And making the decision to kick this, kick the messenger down into the well instead of yes. instead of accepting subservience to to Xerxes. That's yeah. exactly the look that we, that Connie and I had. And and at that moment, I was not only healed of cancer; I was healed of arthritis. And so we have been since then. And this was two years ago. We don't have a church in our area that we like, so instead we go to a subacute facility every Sunday. There's like ten of us, and we lay hands on the sick and pray for the sick with, with the uh, with with the same procedure that got me healed of cancer. Yeah, I mean, I, I have experienced meeting hundreds of thousands of people from the cancer space in the last 15 years, and it continually inspires me to see how everyone has their own way of defining how this happened to them, how they reconcile with the universe. And, you know, it, it's, it doesn't judge, it doesn't care, it just, it's there. And I, I'm, I'm, I was diagnosed 25 years ago. I think I mentioned that. And just to see, though, how far we've come, where 25 years ago, prostate cancer could have been a death sentence. And here you are, you know, even five years ago. And congrats on five years. That's like a, a nice little cancerversary milestone, by the way, is how, how the humanity of dealing with all the crap can really 
and, and, and the community is there. And it wasn't there for me. It wasn't there for millions of people. But it is there today. And the fact that you have been very open about this, wrote this book about this, it's going to help other people in a way that I probably could not have been helped 25 years ago. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, well, you know, five years before I had the, it's it's important to note that when I, when I had my first surgery at Johns Hopkins from Dr. Ted Schaefer, amazing surgeon, but he was known for treating aggressive cancer aggressively. And he even used those words. So did Patrick Walsh, who who trained him. Uh, And Patrick Walsh was one of the first guys to use the robotic, uh, the Da Vinci robotic laparoscopic uh, prostatectomy and uh, robots basically. And, uh, and, and then, and then Dr. Uh, Dr. Brian Chapin, another surgeon who did my second surgery. And then, uh, Christopher Logothetis, my, you know, my oncologist, if I, if I hadn't had faith for those guys and for all those hospitals, I'd be dead right now. And so it's really important to figure out what you have faith for. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's a training thing. You know, I mean, my wife and I, I mean, we, I mean, we go to bed every night and yeah, maybe we'll watch a comedy every now and then. But we we listen to people like Curry Blake and Barry Bennett and Andrew Womack, all of them out of uh, two of them out of Karis Bible College. This is a this is a school that all they teach is healing, and the you know and the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, we're we're going to kill ourselves if we don't renew our minds, and that's in the book of uh, of of Romans. Uh, it, fear of COVID nineteen, fear of cancer fear of lack, fear of losing your job, you will end up, I can tell you, because I've, I've done it, you will end up manifesting that. I manifested cancer in my life. Absolutely no question. DNA is, is, only, is, is only 5% of what's going to happen to you. Epigenetics tells us that the rest of it, 95%, has to do with, uh, with not only diet and fitness, but a big part of it is what, you, what you're talking about, about, the, about healing your mind. You can have all these thoughts. We have millions of thoughts every day. But the moment you take one and speak it out, it's a whole different ballgame. And even Dr. Caroline Leaf, the neuro, neurosurgeon, will tell you that, that spoken words can affect your body at the subatomic level. So take that, right? Well, you had me at epigenetics, by the way. My, 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 one of my favorite jargon geek words of all of oncology. I have one more fun like to go in a fun direction, I had the chance to have dinner with Jason Priestley many, many years ago, and I, I jokingly asked him how blunt of an object does it carry around when he meets people that just goes da na 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 da na na na, you know. Right. So I just, I just have to ask you, how often do people just walk up to you and start singing the ET song? Not as often uh, as they used to, uh, because, <laughs> because people have really sort of grown out of it. You know, there's. Uh, but I, I, I actually have I have plenty of people who will sing the NBA basketball theme to me because that's that's um, it, it's it, it has more of a um, it has more of an emotional response for people who grew up with um, with with Magic and Michael Jordan and and uh, um, what's his name the the announcer. Um, Marv Albert? Uh, Marv Albert, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and so I, I probably get that more often than I was I was doing an interview with a with my old friend uh, Adam Carolla the the other day and we were we were talking about um about the old days when I used to just get made fun of all the time. I mean, it was, you know, every, every, every cartoon was, you know, a picture of hell and it was me playing piano in hell, you know, <laughs> you know, and he, and he asked me, he said, did that, did that ever get, you know, but and, and when Red Rocks happened, it was it was sort of over for all that madness because uh, Newsweek did a big story calling it the Teshing of America. You know, wow, that whole thing. Yeah, it was. But but even after that, it wasn't like C told you because 
I understand how it works. And I think the reason I understand and I understood how it works is that I, w- I was in the media business, you know, uh, sitting on a preeminent uh, entertainment news desk for 10 years, covering everybody and watching everybody go through and interviewing everybody. You know, you, you, you can see the people who, who don't take themselves too seriously and, and you start to much prefer their attitude to the people who just don't want you to, 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 to touch them with anything uh, less than what they think of themselves. Yeah, haters gonna hate. That's a just never ending. But you know, uh, the fact that all that happened in the '80s before social media, definitely different dynamic with the public. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. T- I mean, Twitter is Twitter's got to be of Satan, right? Just try to stay away from that thing. But it's. Uh, I didn't want to write a book. You know, I I didn't think about writing a book. It's not that I didn't want to. I like reading books. But when Harper Collins came to me after hearing the story about about the divine healing approach that Connie and I took to the end of my journey. They said, "Would you would you be interested in writing a book?" And I said, "Ah, I don't know. Not just about cancer." And they said, "Well, make us an outline of your life." And 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 you know, I'm not sure how much you you know you journal, but but I highly recommend it. And and I really didn't until I decided to write this book. And it was supposed to be done in six months. And two and a half years later, I finished it. Um, which part of it was because I was still going through my my journey, and and I wanted to include all of that stuff, but. When you go back and when you're forced, and I was because I said yes to this book, when you're forced to go back and find a way to fill 80,000 words, and some of that's your life, you, I went back and I looked at when I was in a 19 and a half years old, I'm in a tent because I got thrown out of school for forging a professor's name to a drop ad card. And then my father, who was shamed by that, by my, by my decision, he threw me out of the house and I ended up in a park breaking concrete with a shovel. Uh, in a construction crew. And then three years later, I'm anchoring the news in New York City at WCBS-TV at 23 years old as the youngest correspondent in the history of, of, of CBS. And my, to my left is John Stossel. To my right is Meredith Vieira. In front of me is Bill O'Reilly and Brian Williams. And and I look back at that and said, I thought that was 10 years. You know, I look back and it was 36 months. <laughs> and that's when that's when you understand that uh, that there's that that God is there and there's a Holy Spirit taking care of you. And so, um, uh, connecting the dots is really a great exercise, no matter how you do it, whether it's journaling or writing a book. Yogi Berra, who's the Sherpa of life, of course, once said that you know, if life were easy, everyone would do it. Going back to perseverance and pushing forward and and finding a way to make sense of everything that works for you and inspiring other people out there, you know, it's Passover tonight and it's all about, you know, <laughs> with the, the plague passing over our houses out yeah, there man. and April being the month with the most religious holidays and the most spirituality around the world, you know, it's really appreciating everything that we have and how we're trying to, I say, make it suck a little less for everyone else by learning what we've gone through. Yeah, but the other thing you have to remember, though, is, is is since the fall, when the snake got involved with Adam and, and Eve, uh, that was you know that everything changed <laughs> then. That was a long yep. time ago, but but since that time, we have as human beings been been uh, faced with with suffering, and it's I didn't always embrace suffering, and when I read. Victor Frankl's memoir, I started to understand it, listening to some Jordan Peterson stuff. But but most profoundly, when uh, years ago, I read M. Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled. And the first sentence is, life is difficult, period. And then a and then new paragraph. And it's like, until you can 
understand that, get the revelation of it, and then work on transcending it, you'll never have a full life. And it's just so true. And, and until somebody does the, does the uh, um, tablecloth trick where they, they pull your life out and, and there's, uh, there's some stuff standing and some's not, and I'm talking about your cancer diagnosis, you don't really understand what, uh, what suffering is. And, and I think if, if people could really, if there's some way you could get to where you and I are, without having to go through what you went through. If you can get to that revelation, you, you just you save yourself so much pain. And then the other thing to realize, and you know this, and I'll leave you with this, is one of my all-time favorite quotes from, and, it's, and it, it came upon me after I wrote the book, so it's not in the book, but it's such a great quote, is from Thomas Edison. It is this, most people miss an opportunity because it's dressed in overalls and it looks like work. Anything you want to do, and that means it, whether you want a, your own Red Rock special or you want to get out of a tent and get busy or you want to meet the woman of your dreams or you want to beat cancer, it's, it's a lot of work. It's dressed in overalls and it's a lot of work and sometimes it takes training. John Tesh, thank you so much for an incredible interview. Your new book, Relentless, Unleashing a Life of Purpose, Grit, and Faith. The man, the myth, the legend, John Tesh. Thank you. My pleasure. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.